Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities, Asia Pacific. Marty, uh, wow, <laughs> we have seen some very big moves in the Chinese equities market. The action or price actually really being driven by the recent party congress in Beijing, where the country's leadership lineup for the next five years was revealed. Investors really looking for signs or signals in terms of what's going to happen next with China. Are we entering a new phase of the Chinese story? All, of course, still under Xi Jinping's leadership. And with a backdrop, Catherine, of so much other stuff going on, when we think about signature policies like common prosperity and dual circulation, changing dynamics there, we've got weak external demand and how that's creating challenges for manufacturers. You've got this monetary policy divergence that I know we're going to talk about a little bit, and not to mention COVID-related restrictions where domestic consumers are changing their spending patterns as the rest of Asia eyes China's reopening. Yep, and in this podcast, we will be speaking to Fidelity's investment team about all these issues and notably this new phase and how it's going to play out both across the economy and how it's going to play out across markets locally, regionally, and obviously what this means for global investors. So for our first guest today, I'd like to introduce Morgan Lau. Hi, Marty. Hi, Morgan. Morgan is a Hong Kong-based fixed income portfolio manager. Morgan, you've got experience in both onshore and offshore credit and also really good experience in the rates market. And I know we'll cover some of that in the discussion today. For the first question I have for you, let's talk about the China reopening. And we've clearly had some policy divergence with China in an easing stance and the rest of the world in a tightening stance. And I'd really like to get your initial take on that as it relates to the overall economy. I think the overall take is China has a very different um, economic dynamic right now. It's actually not the first time we've seen this. Um, back in 2020, when the COVID first started, what we have observed is the rest of the world, they were affected by COVID later on and also came out of it later, uh, whereas China had it what was hit first and came off it earlier, actually had the opposite dynamic than it is right now. So uh, since about um, Q3 of 2020, the Chinese bond market was actually really underperforming the rest of the world, a bit like the opposite of, of what we have right now. So we, we are quite used to um, the sort of different uh, monetary conditions, inflation and from the experience before. Uh, the truth is they are very separate pool of assets as of now, um, although a lot of effort has been made uh, by the Chinese government to join the Chinese capital pool with the rest of the world. It is not really there yet. And um, I, I guess the willingness is not there yet for it to happen right now. So we have to be very used to it. So we have to look at it like basically separate economy, separate conditions. It's interesting you talk about this willingness. So what could be the catalyst to see policymakers look not just at the domestic economy, but sort of further afield? I think they have to have the uh, domestic economy uh, sorted out first. Right now, it's not in good shape. Um, there are a, a lot of problems. And uh, with the new Congress and new leaderships uh, in, in the government, there are so many problems they have to look after first. I think another thing is uh, the currency has to be more um, internationalized. I think right now, um, we, we are still very concerned about uh, where renminbi is against other currencies, uh, especially against US dollar. So we're still talking about all those foreign exchange flow and all that. When those conversations 
are not as concerning as before, um, then China will be more comfortable. I think too much focus are put on those things right now, and that's going to move the market unnecessarily. At the end, China's next ambition is for renminbi to be um, a, a one of the global reserve currency. It's getting there, but uh, we are still quite a few years from that. So before that, I don't think the monetary policy would join up with the world. Morgan, in your view, what would you say are the key problems? The key problem right now is they're transiting from a more export-focused economy into a more domestic one. So, so to speak, they, they use the one through circulation quite a lot. I think the inner circulation is not really working to the way the government wants yet. So there's definitely more need for the domestic economy, uh, the consumptions to take more charge of the GDP. Right now, it's too focused on export as well as um, well, previously the property market. Um, and that's not the sort of quality growth that they're looking for. When you have more quality growth, then all the other sector problem would be more sorted out. Like, for example, banking right now is um, very geared towards a certain sector like property. And whenever we have those problems in the sector, then people are looking at banking as a problem. And there are some other consumption stock as well. And um, we all remember last year when we had those problems with um, education company and um, later on in the last year and, you know, sort of, an ongoing problem this year is the internet company. All of that shows that they are still looking for the meaning of what quality growth means. So I think before they can do that, these are going to be the really big topic they have to sort out. Otherwise, we'll be seeing uh, a lot of volatility, change of policy all the time, which is making us really nervous from you know, outside of China. Thanks, Morgan. Those are some important points, and I know we're going to come back to them later. But first, let's talk about Macau a little bit and new phases of growth. Now, Macau is a tourist destination near Hong Kong. It's the only place where casinos are are licensed in the greater China area. And Macau is also the first city to announce that they're reopening to mainland Chinese tourists. Victoria Mio, who's our Hong Kong-based head of equity research for Asia Pacific, she visited there recently. Now, Victoria and I spoke recently at the Hong Kong-Macau Ferry Terminal, and let's listen to what she had to say. Hi, Victoria. I heard this place used to be really crowded. It doesn't seem like it's so busy right now. Yeah, it used to be really busy with a lot of people traveling to and from um, Macau. Unfortunately, since the pandemic, the ferry service to Macau has been stopped. Hopefully, when um, the pandemic is over, this will reopen and we'll see more and more people you know, going to and from Macau again. So, Victoria, Macau is on a reopening path. I'm wondering, there's been some recent news on mass testing. Is that changing things? Since the pandemic, there are COVID cases you know, from time to time. And the Macau government learned from the past mistake and they take really sweet action. So after three months of no COVID, once they see some COVID cases spun out, they order a mass testing recently. Moreover, they're going to order another mass testing. So hopefully in a short period of time, this COVID case will be um, prevented and then Macau can go back to normal. On the economy, Victoria, Macau historically has had a strong reliance on gambling and visitors from mainland China. Is that continuing that way or are there new things on the horizon? The visitation from mainland China used to be and remain the most important flow or source of um, tourists. But going forward, we are seeing some government policies to um, diversify our way. So there are really two diversification. One is 
diversify away from gaming into other services um, such as you know, entertainment, convention, restaurants, and uh, cultural activities. And second diversification is diversification of the tourists from overseas market. Unfortunately, um, I think the local operator do has experience in attracting overseas visitor. So in the future, with government you know, pushing more policies to encourage this direction, we think that there is a chance that Macau can gradually diversify its um, you know, economy. Well, that's some good news ahead. So last question I have is back to casinos a little bit. There's a competitive bid for licenses right now. What's the outlook there? There are um, you know, six existing operators, they all apply. And a surprise was that there is a new challengers joining the bidding process. I know that the government wants to um, speed up this bidding process so that it reduces the uncertainty for the operator. It will you know, let the gaming industry to go back to its um, normal operation. So we expect that the government will announce the bidder, the successful bidder, by the end of the year so that they can operate under a new casino license for the next 10 years. All right, thanks, Victoria. We'll be on the lookout for that. Thank you, Mati. Yeah, Marty, those uh, licenses and uh, news flow about the licenses really, really key for the segment. You know what, though, when I think about Macau, and Victoria is actually also from Macau, um, my dad during the World War II here fled to Macau because it was under Portuguese uh, rule. And when he came back, you know, years ago and just started seeing the beginning of the construction of the, the casinos, he was totally blown away because it used to be this quaint little fishing village. So even the development in such a short period of time has really changed the city. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And, you know, look, the ferry terminal is closed right now. You can just feel the energy there a little bit when Victoria and I were standing there. It's almost itching to reopen. Yeah. And it's what this normalcy is what the market's really looking for. Totally. Morgan, investors, whether you're in equities, whether you're in fixed income, alternatives, they're looking for signs of returning back to normality. When we look at government bonds in China, you know, known to be more stable, or is this no longer a valid thought? I consider the bond markets uh, very stable in the China market still. Most importantly is, is the monetary policy, as we mentioned before, that is still going to be on an easing mode uh, compared to the rest of the world. But another important factor is uh, for any local currency market, if uh, you have a very large proportion being owned by your domestic uh, investor, um, if you look at markets like, for example, the Japanese bond market has been very, very steady, and that's one of the reasons why they can keep the sort of, you know, more easing bias compared to the rest of the world. Apply that to the Chinese market is, is just as valid. China has historically have a problem of lacking investment opportunity, which is why a lot of Chinese citizens uh, would go for the property market because the, the equity market and the bond market were not as developed. Um, even now, um, the market, compared to the sort of GDP they have, the market size is not really up to the sort of ratio we have seen in the developed uh, world. And therefore, we're having a, a very big pot of money chasing a smaller pot of asset, which is why, um, by essence, it will still be quite steady. So, Morgan, that's interesting. And uh, one of the trends recently that we've seen 
is that international investors have started to withdraw money from Chinese government bonds, haven't they, after years of, of investing in them. And that leads to capital account flows. So how do you think capital account flows are going to be managed by the government? How are investors looking at it? How are you looking at it? So um, as an investor with uh, the options to um, invest in the rest of the world, it makes sense for any investor to reallocate their, their, their AUM from within Chinese bond market uh, to the rest of the world because, you know, the technical is looking a bit better. It's very enticing, you know, look at the yield level for the rest of the world. So it makes sense. And it's actually a good sign uh, if you ask me that investors are able to make that sort of allocation choices from within the Chinese market to the rest of the world. This is one of the things that um, early investors was quite concerned whether they can actually, you know, do reallocation from and in, in and out of China. The next thing that we, we, we need to be looking at is, apart from the rate market, uh, the credit market is not very developed and very few um, investors are actually uh, looking to, to deploy there. And therefore, the, the DM rate market is looking really attractive. Chinese bond market has been outperforming. You're going to see that outflow because there's nowhere else for the money to go to. And so um, the flow will continue. But if we look at some of the statistics, uh, the CGB market uh, is about 20-30% of the whole bond market right now, and it's on about 10-15% to by foreign investor. So if you just look, look at the math, it's under 5% of the whole market is owned by foreign investor. And so even if all of that goes out, which is unlikely because of um, the in index inclusion, so a lot of investors would have to have a allocation into the bond market. But even if some of the allocation goes out, it's not going to create a really big uh, outflow, especially compared to the trade surplus we have seen in the last couple of years um, since COVID started. So, Can we dig deeper into the impact of the strong US dollar on the Chinese currency market or, or what this means trading-wise? One thing I've noticed in, in the last couple of months is actually that uh, the investors in the world seem to have changed the, the, the attitude towards uh, renminbi. I think before they were very focused on um, renminbi versus US dollar. And in the last couple of months, people have been less worried about that level in, in particular and have been talking more about the CFX RMB index. Now, the CFX RMB index is sort of like the US dollar index, but for renminbi. And so it's uh, renminbi versus a trade-rated basket. If you look at the index, it has been very steady uh, since June, July. Uh, it has been around 102 level because the appreciation of U.S. dollar has been idiosyncratic to U.S. dollar. And the rest of the world was sort of just, you know, going along with the appreciation story. So the rest of the currency has been depreciating. So renminbi is one of the members of, you know, this global currency member. And so it's been depreciating against U.S. dollar. But on a trade-weighted basket, uh, Basis, it's actually been keeping quite steady. Now, in the last couple of weeks since the end of the Congress, we have had a bit of idiosyncratic depreciation of uh, renminbi, and that's creating some negative flow as well, capital flow. So we, we have to look at the future of the currency is, I think the days long gone when the Chinese government would actually directly intervene the FX market. Nowadays, they usually just you know, tell people don't go against the currency, etc. So uh, what we call window guidance. But there are other things that will support the currency. So I don't actually expect a disorderly depreciation of the currency. Um, if you look at trade sur surplus, as I mentioned, um, it's been very strong. That can go down as world economy go into uh, a bit of recession risk. But another thing is also the internationalization of renminbi. As more people trade and use the currency, there will be a need for them to keep more renminbi as well. And therefore, it will, it will create a natural flow of buying into renminbi. So all of that should be supportive. So um, I my, my outlook on the currency is still quite steady.
So, Morgan, one of the things we're hearing a lot about, along with the strong dollar that I think investors are really focused on, is the level of reserves in various countries, so China included. Now, you just said that you don't think China is going to aggressively defend the currency, but do you think they have the reserve position to do so if they decided to? Yes. Right now, we are getting really close to the three trillion mark. Uh, it was as high as four trillion around 2014-15 uh, from my memory. So, and then we had a, a bout of depreciation of the currency back in 2015. And so it went, um, and there was a lot of capital flow back in 2015, and it went from four trillion to closer to three trillion. And it's been around this level for a long time. Now, this number in itself is a really, really big number. Uh, the second largest foreign reserve in the world is Japan. is about one third of that size. About one. One trillion. So free trillion is a very big reserve to defend the currency if you have to. And if we think about all the surplus going in, all the international that I just talked about, these are all going to support it. Now, the last thing I want to add is a few years ago, actually, um, when you talk to some of the government officials, they actually had made a comment that free trillion is too big, two trillion is too big. We don't actually need that big of a foreign reserve if the currency is used enough. And so I think the mindset is whether they want to defend the three trillion or well, it's not really something you can defend, but how, how they want to use that foreign reserve depends on how fast the international goes. If you look at the US, the US doesn't actually have a foreign reserve because it is the global reserve currency. I'm not saying renminbi will get there, but the closer you get to a global reserve currency, the less need you have for a foreign reserve. So it is not really uh, a concern right now. If in another two, three months, we see it deep below you know, two trillion, then I think we have a very alarming sign. Um, but right now, it is um, not really a concern yet. Now, the last point, which is quite minor, is that the shrinking of the foreign reserve has a lot of valuation effect in there as well, because the foreign reserve has a lot of non-US dollar currency, as they have been depreciating, you're going to get a bit of that effect because the reserve is calculated in US dollar. So, you know, it's not all our flow yet. But it's good to know that there's that cushion, especially with a lot of the global uncertainty we are seeing. And a lot of this global uncertainty really centered around central banks in terms of tightening policies, whether inflation can be reined in. Now, Morgan, you also highlighted earlier about these areas of growth, such as consumption in China, and what investors are particularly concerned about is the impact of COVID restrictions on this domestic consumption story. One takeaway from all of this is, could we be entering a, a phase where Chinese consumers actually almost have this consumption downgrade or enter a period of frugalization? On the subject of frugalization, I caught up with one of our Hong Kong-based analysts and portfolio managers, Ben Lee. Ben and I actually caught up in a very popular shopping destination in Hong Kong called Mong Kok, and the actual place where we met, commonly referred to as Sneaker Street. Ben, we're standing here on a very well-known street in Hong Kong called Sneaker Street. And what's really struck me is that the short amount of time we've been standing here, we haven't seen that many shopping bags in terms of shoppers purchasing and coming out with their goods. Could this be a sign of potentially a consumption downgrade? Yes, Catherine, I would say so. Because um, you know Chinese consumers are having a difficult time this year. The economy has not been doing very well. And then in difficult times like this, you would expect consumers to be very cautious in terms of setting aside uh, their budget for discretionary spending. We all know that in China, unemployment rate is rising. 
income growth expectation is coming down. Um, that's why consumers are turning more and more conservative. I think also what's happening in China is the lockdowns and the zero COVID policy. That's really impacting on many things, especially the demand for consumer products that are associated with on-premise channels, for example, restaurants, bars, uh, those are going to be impacted quite a bit over the past uh, few years. In terms of the consumer discretionary space, so is there a subsector that you're particularly concerned about when it comes to this frugalization? We all know that uh, for sportswear products, there is a very wide range of price points. Uh, people can go for international brands who are selling, say, a, a pair of basketball shoes for RMB 1000 or RMB 1500. But you can also go for domestic brands who are selling for 300, 400, or 500. And in times like this, especially when domestic brands are catching up quickly in terms of uh, functionality and product quality, consumers are becoming more uh, attracted to the value for money products. And they can get the same pair of basketball shoes for half the price with a similar level of functionality. Um, so that's definitely some uh, consumption downgrade there in the sportswear category. What about at the other end of the spectrum, Ben, in terms of um, the premiumization trend? Does that mean it's no longer valid? I think if you look at the very high end, the luxury categories, things have been fine so far. If you look at the results of the European luxury companies, if you look at results of the Chinese uh, ultra-premium Baijiu companies, things are still pretty good, uh, which tells us that for the very affluent and rich consumers in China, they're not too affected. Uh, by this overall uh, macro and zero COVID situation. And Ben, a final question. When we look at an economic recovery uh, for, for China, uh, you know, when we see a change in policy regarding the zero COVID or dynamic zero COVID policy, no longer having to wear our masks, improving sentiment, could this in fact be a very strong catalyst in terms of the recovery itself? So pent up demand actually plays out? I think it definitely will be a very important catalyst because right now the lockdowns are being a huge disruption to a lot of the businesses and to a lot of consumer demand. If we can see some relaxation on that, or if we can see some more stimulus coming from the central government being injected into the system, then definitely there is going to be uh, a strong recovery of consumption demand and the release of the pent-up demand that you just mentioned. Ben, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, Catherine, that, that was interesting to listen to Ben. I think if you put what he said and you combine it with what Victoria said earlier, we are starting to get a little bit of normalization, aren't we? And Ben sort of talking a little bit about consumer trends. I know we've had singles day starting early. There's some signs for optimism, yeah? Yeah. Why are you looking at me like that? You know I spend a lot of money on Netta Porter, don't you? But I'm loving this know anything new about that. singles day early promotion. Um, you know, Marty, when you look at Chinese households, though, the savings rate is still over 30%. So it's not like households don't have the money to spend or that free money is being taken away from households like we're seeing in other countries around the world. Yeah. We still have Morgan with us, but I'd also like to bring into the conversation Monica Lee, who is based in our Shanghai office and is a director of research for us. Hi, Monica. Hi, Catherine. Good to see you. Hi, Monica. How are you? We just had the Party Congress, and there was a lot of volatility in equity markets after that, but banks were a little bit more resilient. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, uh, actually, bank's valuation was very cheap to start with, so the drawdown was smaller versus the other sectors, uh, and dividend yield of the major banks is now around 10%, um, so that's very lucrative and provides downside support as well. And if you look at fundamentals, um, the loan growth this year has been pretty strong at around 10% year-over-year, and asset quality, surprisingly, has been pretty benign so far. So even the big banks managed to post mid-single-digit profit growth year-to-date, not to mention double-digit growth uh, for the profit of the joint stock banks, the smaller ones. So there is fundamental support to some extent for the banks. So actually, I'm not too surprised because usually in bear market, uh, banks tend to outperform uh, almost always. Yeah. So you're basically saying we're in a bear market, Monica, aren't you? Um, we've covered consumption, we've covered banks, uh, we've been obviously speaking a lot about fixed income. The other risk that a lot of investors are worried about is relating to the US banning certain components when it comes to semiconductors. So how much of a risk is this for China and could we see a knock-on effect in terms of inflationary pressures? Yeah, that's really what the market is focusing right now, isn't it? So if you look at the restriction, the purpose is now switching from previously um, the national security focus to now restricting China's development of those very advanced knots in the semi conductor manufacturing. Um, so the restrictions are now wider. It applies to the equipment, the component, as well as U.S. persons, which will create a more tricky situation for the China semiconductor companies. So there were two parts to this uh, restrictions. Firstly, definitely the advanced knots will be hit. Uh, so for example, the China AI companies will have limited access to the more advanced chips, uh, and some of the memory companies may not be expand their capacity as planned, given all the difficulties. But the other part will be the mature NAS. They will be actually pretty safe because they are not touched by these current restrictions. Um, so some of the foundries are still going to expand their capacity as planned. Uh, and if anything, they could be thinking about speeding up their capacity build out to accelerate domestication. So currently the collateral damage for the mature nodes are really on the sentiment side and there's no real impact for now. Uh, and speaking of inflationary pressure, I think there could be some inflationary pressure at the start because um, as domestic equipment makers start to replace the imported ones, their initial production yield or uh, deficiency will not be as high as the imported ones. Um, so this will result in higher costs at the beginning. But as the domestic technology catches up, we probably will see some cost benefits here because Chinese manufacturers are so good at cutting costs. I'd like to bring Morgan in on this point about inflation. Morgan, in the bond markets, are you seeing much concern about inflation in China? It's been very low compared to the rest of the world. But what Monica just talked about is potentially an increase. Yes, but right now it is not something that people are talking about yet. The concern is after, as and when we have the relaxation from COVID, there might be a bit of shortage of um, labor. I think what people are not talking about a lot is the fact that given the very strict restriction in, in, in some of the area, for example, in manufacturing, once we have the complete opening up, we could have uh, more cases, actually. If we look at what happened in Vietnam last year, a lot of the manufacturing worker um, got COVID and that has hurt productivity. And that's one of the concerns. It, it, it's not a main one, but it's one of the concerns that after opening up, uh, we could have that, which could lead to some more inflation. Uh, Monica, tell us, what's it like sentiment on the ground being in Shanghai at the moment? Are people itching to sort of see things reopen? 
Yeah, people are looking forward to the reopening all the time. But I have to say, before the Ponte Congress, there was an um, you know hope about opening soon. But then there was the disappointment because things are not going to happen so quickly. But now I can see some new hopes building up. But overall, I think it's really based on some hearsays and anecdotes. Um, so the best thing we can do is to monitor the marginal changes in the official tone to see when reopening is happening. But I think it's going to happen sooner or later. Uh, just officials are weighing on the pros and cons, and once the pros overweigh the cons, then we will see the reopening happening, but probably on a more gradual basis. So Monica, earlier you talked a little bit about semi-bans, and we went into a lot of detail around that. Um, one of the things we've really seen in China is this shift from growth to value, and value has become much more attractive. We've seen returns in value segments much better than growth areas. Could you give us some context on that, maybe looking at historical levels and thinking about where valuations are today for that dynamic, that growth value dynamic? Yeah, sure. If you, we look at the overall market, now it's trading at below 10 times. We're looking at MSCI China right now, and my numbers show it is nine times forward DRPE ratio. Um, this is as cheap as the 12 level around GFC in 2008, uh, and PB ratio is now at all-time low. And if you look at the value sectors per se, the valuation is even cheaper, like for the banks. And valuation like uh, dividend yield I mentioned was really attractive at 10%, which is, yeah, I think provides a lot of valuation support. And this also prompts the investors to look at those value sectors uh, with a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. And some of the PMs are telling me that they're seeing opportunities like they've never seen before, just picking up with the point you made, where they're seeing companies where literally cash is equivalent to market cap. Now, we don't see that very often. Do you see that yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's a lot of very attractive valued companies flying around. Uh, but I have to say this is for a reason because a lot of pessimism has been priced uh, in to the market. So currently, maybe we are about to see a reversal of the sentiment. So it's very difficult to see more negative surprises uh, into the market. But all it takes will be some slight good news to drive the market up, in my view. Morgan, up front, you spoke, you know, very candidly about China having a number of problems. But on the flip side of the coin, they also have the tool set to ease, both monetary and fiscally speaking. So could we make the argument that China's at least one cycle ahead of other major economies? And if we continue to see this global volatility, China's actually in quite a good space. Certainly. Um, we have to look at China in terms of how they manage the economy. There's a philosophic difference. Sometimes when I get asked about monetary policy and fiscal policy, I, I sometimes explain that in China, the line between fiscal policy and monetary policy is actually quite blurred. Um, I, I think in other countries, when you have monetary policy, just like the U.S., you, you cut rate, you hope that would flow through the, the uh, commercial bank system into the general public. And when it's fiscal policy, you're doing some infrastructure, you're spending a bit of money on, on, on everything to stimulate the economy. Now in China, when the government is asking the bank to lend more to a certain sector, is that monetary easing or is that fiscal? And so I think the line is quite blurred. But the truth is in China, because of the higher control over most of the sector and many of the major companies, uh, the lever the government has to actually stimulate uh, is really strong. And we have seen that because of past experience, when they throw a lot of money, uh, monetary easing into the economy, it really jack up the, the inflation. And so they don't want to do it right now. 
uh, I think China has been very uh, restrained in terms of directly stimulating the economy this round. But if they have to, there's so much they can do on the policy side, on the COVID uh, reopening and all that. So I have a feeling that it's just not bad enough for them to do anything. But uh, if they have to, they can. And there are a lot of potential to be released there. Monica, what about from an earnings perspective? Could we also argue that China's maybe one cycle ahead of, of other markets? Well, Catherine, it's very hard to tell at this moment. Uh, all we can see is that so far this year, the earnings estimates have been revised down all the way throughout the year. So currently, we are seeing a pretty low point in terms of earnings projection, and a lot of pessimism has been there as well. Um, but it's hard to say exactly when earnings cycles are going to turn, because it really depends on the COVID policy as well as the development in the local real estate, which are the two biggest unknowns in China nowadays, if you like. You know, Catherine, we, we've covered a lot of ground here. If I think about what Morgan talked about with the tools that the Chinese government has, if we listen to Monica about the levels of sentiment, and clearly they're weak and there's uncertainty, but if you think about that versus, say, a global economy where, you know, increasingly I'm starting to get concerned about the U.S. and Europe and that they might be entering more of a recession, and China it feels like there's a good chance that we're exiting that sort of phase I know we're not out of the weeds yet, but uh, but there's more to come, right? It's looking a little bit better. I remember our conversation with a particular regional portfolio manager last week who said everyone is highlighting or focusing on the risks in China, but there's another market within our region that everyone is in love with. And the fact that no one's even talking about potential risks there could be a bigger risk. Yeah, so true. So that brings us to the end of this episode. And I'd like to offer a thanks to our guests, Morgan Lau in Hong Kong and Monica Lee in Shanghai, and to our other contributors, Victoria Mio and Ben Lee. And of course, thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or visit fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Su and Keith Chern. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.